Welcome to Osteo. That's with a capital T-E-A, where Osteo Warriors in treatment and recent survivors spill the tea on all things osteosarcoma and cancer from the adolescent young adult patient perspective. Listen in on our honest and personal conversations about our osteo experiences, stories, and who knows what else. This podcast discusses all aspects of young adult cancer experience in a conversational format. In today's episode, we'll be discussing dating, dating and intimacy. Our conversation will be appropriate for young adults 18 years old and older. We would like to communicate a trigger warning for sexual content. If this isn't your jam, we'll be back next month for a different topic. Audience discretion is advised. Like and follow MIB Agents on social media for all the intel. MIB Agents has a new monthly newsletter called Connective Issue. It includes info uh, and interest to our osteosarcoma community, including recent news and papers, open clinical trials, job postings, info about MIB agents and programs, and spotlights on members of our community. To make sure you get all this info delivered to your inbox every month, join our community. A link will be provided to join in our episode description. And you still have time this September to support MIB agents in our programs for Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Join us for our virtual outrunning osteosarcoma event. When you run, walk, or cycle with us, you can help cause a cure. Rally some friends for a 5K, 10K, or half marathon in September. You can do it together in person or virtually. Register at mibagents.swugo.com forward slash outrunning. We also encourage you to purchase a gold mailbox bow to raise awareness for pediatric cancer and show that you care. Order a bow today at mibagents.org forward slash bows. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to the fourth episode of Osteo, the Osteosarcoma podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, tuning into Osteo, my name is Camille. I'm an MIB junior advisory board member and an Osteo warrior. To give a brief background on me, I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma in 2013 at age 10. I went through a year of chemotherapy and had a left limb salvage surgery um, in my right tibia. Left limb salvage surgery. That is that is a joke. <laughs> anyway, um, I went through a year of chemotherapy. And since my diagnosis, I've relapsed seven times. And most recently in June, I'm still recovering from a left thoracotomy and I'll soon be entering a clinical trial here in Boston. And I just started my sophomore year at Boston University where I'm studying psychology and minoring in theater. And of course, today we have lovely host Vicki Hoy. Hi everyone, my name is Vicki Hoy and I'm also on the junior advisory board and I'm also an osteo warrior. Uh, I was diagnosed last year in July of 2021 and received 10 months of MAP chemotherapy, along with a left limb salvage surgery to replace uh, half my pelvis and my hip. And I also had a thoracotomy in my right lung. Since finishing treatment in May, I'm now a freshman at Villanova University studying finance. Our next toast is Shannon. Hello, everyone. My name is Shannon McCormack. I am also a member of the Junior Advisory Board. I am an osteo sibling to my osteo uh, angel brother, Dylan. Um, and I am currently a sophomore at Binghamton University. I'm studying biology on a pre-med track. So today on Osteo, we're talking about all things friendships, relationships, dating, and intimacy. Joining us today is Lauren Broshek, an oncology certified licensed clinical social worker, sex therapist, and sexuality educator. She received her master's degree in social work from the University of Michigan, specializing in clinical practice and health. Most recently, she returned to the University of Michigan, receiving a postgraduate certificate in sex therapy and sexuality education. She also completed, completed training through the MOFIT Cancer Center's Enriching Communication Skills for Health Professionals in Oncofertility Program. Currently, she works as an oncology therapist in Innova Life with Cancer, where she provides individual counseling, education, and resources for patients and their families. In this role, she also creates and facilitates support groups and educational classes. In 2020, she co-authored the chapter, Intimacy and Sexuality Needs of Children and Adolescents at End of Life. In the book, Intimacy and Sexuality During Illness and Loss, published by the Hospice Foundation of America. She presented at several conferences, including AOSW, ONS, LLS, Stupid Cancer, 
and longevity on a range of topics, including the impacts of cancer on AYAs and sexual health. For the last three years, she's been serving as the co-chair of the AYA SIG and AODSW. In this role, she has worked hard to bring members information and resources to enhance and facilitate their work with AYAs and cancer. Wow, it's a long list of credentials, but thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to having this conversation with you all. I think we're going to have a very interesting and informative episode today. I'm literally so excited. So thanks for joining us again, Lauren. Um, we cannot start this convo without having our first segment um, of the episode, What's the Tea? No, like, literally. Um, we'll be going around and sharing what we're drinking today and give it an honest review, and I will start us off. Today, I am drinking Celsius. Um, it's the staple of every college student's energy, how they get their energy. Um, I have took a sip of it. It does taste like battery acid today, so I honestly would have to give it a three out of ten, but it will get me ramped up and ready for my classes today. <laughs> Vicky, what are you drinking? Um, I in my water bottle, I have just like a meal. It's like a sports drink concentrate. I had it earlier. I had two or three yesterday. I really love it, but probably not not best for me to have so many. <laughs> okay, and then I have today a half-finished cup of coffee from my Keurig in my dorm room with a sweet cream creamer. Ooh. Pretty good. Um, honestly, I'd give it like a 7 out of 10 for dorm room coffee. Uh, and today I have a lemon and ginger tea um, and a Ooh. little mug I brought from home. Um, and it's, it's warm and comforting and also has a little bit of zest to kind of keep me awake. <laughs> I love that. Um, so yeah, with that being said, I think we'll just jump right into asking some questions to you, Lauren. So our first question from our audience is when meeting someone new, how do you bring up that you have cancer? That's obviously a, like a very heavy subject and it's hard to predict how people will react. So what are your thoughts on that, Lauren? Yeah, I think it really depends on like your communication style, the connection you have with that person and what kind of relationship you're building. Are you building a friendship? Are you dating? Um, and that might shift the way that you choose to talk about this. Um, some people dive right in. Some people dive right in and they open their whole book and they share everything about their lives right away. And that feels really comfortable. Some people really aren't comfortable with that and choose to wait a little bit and just kind of give the self it's kind of more shallow period of getting to know each other on a surface level. And then we'll go a little bit deeper. The more we know each other, the more I can trust you, the longer that we've been in this space together. Um, if you are, let's say in a dating scenario and you do kind of take that slower approach, it might be helpful to bring up your cancer experience before those feelings become too strong. Um, and by too strong, I mean a little more than a crush, right? If we're if we're kind of in that I'm catching feelings phase, but we're starting to progress past that, we've been out quite a few times. Um, and maybe also before any physical intimacy occurs. I'm not just talking about kissing unless that's something that you also kind of with your values, morals, religion, whatever that looks like, that that's also not something you want to approach first. Um, but before anything really shows, if you do have any, any physical um, signs of your cancer experience that you want to share before you take your clothes off. Um, that might be helpful to do that ahead of time. Um, I think the other thing to keep in mind is in this world of social media, if you've ever shared your story online, it's really possible that this person that you're with might already know some of your story or all of your story, depending on what you chose to share, even if you didn't tell them yourself. Um, I do think, I don't think there's any magical words for like how to share this, um, but practicing with somebody that you trust and you love who does already know your story and starting to get like, what is it important for me to tell this person? What do I want them to know um, about my experience? Um, what are the words I wanna use and giving yourself kind of that safe space to practice can be really helpful um, and preparing yourself for maybe some difficult questions. Um, you know, what was that experience like for you? How are you now? What does the future look like? Do you want kids? Can you have kids? Did this affect that, right? Especially if you're in a romantic relationship and that is something you're heading towards. Um, just being prepared 
and knowing what you might answer to some of those tough questions. There might be some tough questions that surprise you or that you don't know the answer to. And I think being willing to say, I, you know, I'm not ready to talk about that, or, um, you know, I really don't know, I'm still learning, um, is an okay answer too. And so give yourself permission to not be prepared for everything, but know that this could be really tough. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Um, a more specific question, like kind of regarding that subject as well uh, from the audience was, how do you start the discussion about scars and nerve damage, you know, in particular in a more intimate situation? Yeah, so I would say if you're getting intimately involved with someone, um, I think it's really important to have conversations upfront before you engage physically um, to give permission to share about places of your body you're maybe not comfortable with or you don't want touched or special attention paid to, if there's any parts of your body that bring you pain, or maybe the sensation isn't the same right now and it's just not something you're interested in engaging with and give them the same chance to do it with you too, right? This is kind of creating a safe um, relationship space, whether you have one or multiple partners, um, giving all of you the chance to share what it is that you like what it is maybe you don't like so much and giving permission to during any type of intimate interaction to say no, or I want to change. Could you do this instead? That hurts. Um, and when you set that conversation up ahead of time, it can really reduce any shame or discomfort that you or the person or people you're with might have when you ask to make a shift. And so setting that expectation up ahead of time and normalizing it for everyone in that relationship, not just for you. And that what we're focusing on is a pleasurable experience together. Um, if you haven't shared your cancer story yet, and now you're starting to talk about some nerve changes or body changes, it might be helpful to have that conversation first. So you don't have to tackle all of that in one big conversation, which could be really challenging. Thank you. Um, another question you have is, how do you feel about wearing shorts, dresses, or short sleeves that would possibly show off your scar or a prosthetic limb? Yeah. Um, so I think everyone has a different comfort level with their body, with the scars that they have. If they do have prostheses, how long you've had them, how comfortable you are with them. Um, I think it's really important, especially out in public in spaces that you do feel a little bit more vulnerable to wear things that you feel good and confident in first, even if they don't show those parts of your body that you're adjusting to, um, or that do have those, um, those scars or their prostheses in them. Um, it might be helpful to adjust by showing those to yourself in the mirror first. Um, I really like something called mirror exercises where if you're not comfortable being naked, you start off with all your clothes and maybe gradually over time start to take those off, but just getting comfortable seeing yourself in the mirror and then saying to yourself one to three things you like about your body. Um, and it doesn't have to be about those areas that have scars right away, but maybe eventually it gets there. Um, also starting to reframe any, um, any narratives that you have in your head that aren't helpful about those areas of your body and starting to give yourself permission to grieve, to feel any pain, sadness, anger, or anything else that might come with that part of your body, but then also being compassionate, being kind, maybe reframing what the narrative is about what that part of your body needs. Um, I think with wearing clothes, um, if you're starting to wear clothes that you haven't worn before that are showing off parts of your body that have changed um, or that have scars now, doing that with, again, with people that you trust first. Um, if you're feeling uncomfortable in that, but you have a, spa a safe space to do that in and to experiment and to talk about what it feels like to wear those things can be really healing and really helpful before you start to do that out in public where you don't have as much control or you don't feel like you're in that safe space. And so starting to kind of expose yourself um, to those scenarios within a safety bubble and then start stretching yourself out in public from there. For sure. And I can definitely speak to 
having scars and showing them showing them off um I have a ginormous scar running down from my right knee down to my ankle and for a really long time I would never I would always wear pants or like a long skirt to cover it but I feel like I've definitely gone through like the grieving process like you were talking about Lauren of just kind of accepting like okay like this is my body and I can't feel like a prisoner of my body like this is this is me and if someone doesn't like that about me then they don't matter they should accept me for who I am so I am definitely now a shorts wearer a short skirt wearer and I love it so just anyone out there who's feeling ashamed of like scars and stuff just know like it's a it's a process and it takes time but eventually like you'll get more comfortable in your body um and yeah kind of adding off of that um in your experience Lauren how have um patients like losing their hair from treatment impact how comfortable they feel like in with their family or friends versus going out in public yeah um everybody's a little bit different with this um you know, some people really just kind of choose to embrace the hair loss and just go all out and, and choose to, to wear it as it is. Um, and some people really grieve that change and that loss. Um, I think so many of us identify ourselves a lot with our hair. It's a very visible part of our identity and, and um, how we relate to ourselves and, and kind of, we call it like a sexual self. Um, you know, our body image is a big part of that, um, how we portray ourselves to the world, our, our social selves. Um, it can be really painful. Um, and, and again, there's a grieving process that comes with that. Um, I think people, at least that I've worked with, are more comfortable not wearing a head covering with close friends and family than they are in public, at least at first. And sometimes even with friends and family, that's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's only when I'm by myself or only when I'm going to bed. Um, and that the more they adjust to that change, um, the more comfortable it becomes, even if it's not, not painful, even if it's not comfortable, it's maybe not as painful as it was when it first started. Um, and then if you do become more comfortable with friends and family, you know, maybe taking someone out with you into public, if that's something you want to try. Um, but I think if you're more comfortable wearing a head covering, if you've lost hair or wearing a hat, if you've lost some of your hair, but not all of your hair, um, and allowing yourself, giving yourself permission to have kind of different standards for different parts of your life. So if at home with friends or with a roommate, um, you're really comfortable just kind of doing your own thing and, and not wearing anything on your head or wearing something a little more minimal. But when you go to class or when you go to work or you're out in public, you really prefer not to. Like it's okay to have two different preferences for different situations and just giving yourself permission to learn what's comfortable for you and to do that, to do what feels good, what makes you feel confident. I think I can definitely add on this a little bit because I'm I'm actually wearing a wig right now. <laughs> I wasn't so uh wasn't so into you know having my uh, my buzz cut for this, but I feel like before it took it took a long time to be able to just go bald in public, and just even like around my family. I know I went on a family trip in the first few days. I just had my wig on all the time. I was like, it's not coming off, you know, because it's it was just a matter of I didn't really feel like beautiful without it or just fit like you know like feminine like standards without it especially with like a like even like a short haircut as opposed to bald it felt a lot more masculine than I was used to so I think just having a wig is just a good compromise and it's not like oh I hate the way I look without it it's like no I just like myself more now you know um but the next question on the list uh was how this is from like a partner's perspective as opposed to the patient how do you best support your partner while they're receiving their treatment yeah. So I think the three, four things that I could say um, that are most important, at least from my experience and my perspective, are to listen, to validate, and to be there and be present. So many of the caregivers I work with want to fix things, and they can't. And so rather than focusing or searching for a solution that maybe doesn't exist or isn't within your control, um, choosing to listen to your partner, give them space to talk about if they want to, 
what they're going through and how they're feeling about cancer, about life, about school and work and friends and whatever that might look like. Um, and do it with what we call active listening. So active listening is really showing, I think you've all been doing this on this call, I can see you, are, are showing that you hear that maybe you're nodding along or you're making eye contact. If it's an intimate partner, maybe holding their hand or putting your hand on their leg if they're comfortable with that or on their shoulder. Um, sometimes it's acknowledgement, right? Sometimes it's like, yeah, get that or I hear you um, and so like little phrases to acknowledge that you're hearing what that person is saying validating feelings whatever they are even if they're those really difficult challenging feelings validate them because they're valid all feelings are valid everything that we feel is valid and you can do that by saying like wow that sounds like it's really hard or yeah I can understand why you're angry or why you're sad or sometimes just after they share something, putting your hand on their shoulder and just sitting in silence with them to show you like, I'm here. Like I hear how hard this is. I know I can't fix it. And I'm gonna sit here with you anyways. And then being present when you're together in this world of like social media, is like always at our fingertips on our phones and our friends and, you know, putting the phone away. And there will be times that you'll get texts or calls or you'll both be on social media and like, that's okay. But if you're setting an intentional time aside to be with them, be with them, put that away and be present. I think the last thing for caregivers is to take care of yourself. I cannot count how many caregivers I've worked with where they are the very last person on their list of people to take care of. Um, but it's so important for caregivers to have a space that they can go to and to get support from. Um, whether those people overlap with the person with cancer or it's their own group of people, um, whether that's a therapist or parents or siblings or friends, um, have your own people that you get to lean on and get support from. Um, make time for self-care for yourself. Make sure you're getting enough sleep. If you need to take a bath, take a bath, right? Do something that feels good for you too. Um, so that you can also turn around and continue to, to take care of the person that you love. All right. Um, another question or a comment kind of question thing had come in was um, someone said, I'm trying new treatments that have been giving me some rough side effects, fatigue, shortness of breath, et cetera. My group of best friends are very active and our typical high schoolers want to always go out and do activities. How do I tell them that I need them to slow down or calm down a little so I can keep up? Yeah, that's a tough one. So I would say it becomes so challenging when you see your friends continue moving forward in the life that you had together and that you feel like you can't, you can't do that anymore um, or not to the same extent. Um, the thing that we know is that our our adolescent and, and young peers, they don't always get the changes that you experience with cancer. Um, that, um, and as much as, as we hope that they would, or that we hope that they'll pick up on those subtle hints or comments maybe that are made, if we don't really share what we need, they won't get it. Um, and so finding a time, maybe with a group of friends, finding a time to talk with one of them could be less overwhelming. Um, one that you're particularly close to, that you feel really comfortable with and sharing what you're going through, what you need, how you're feeling and that you really want to be with them, right? That like they are so important to you um, and that this is maybe even share like this is hard for me to ask, right? It's, it's hard to be vulnerable. It's okay if this is really hard to do, but doing it with one person is so much easier than doing it with a whole group of people. And so if you do it with that one, maybe then ask them like, can they help you think of things that you all can do together that you, you can do, that feels good to you too. Um, and see if they'll maybe help you talk with the rest of your group of friends. Um, are they willing to kind of be your partner in communication and having like a second person there to share this with a bigger group of people can feel a lot less overwhelming. It can make it easier to be vulnerable. That's what I would recommend. Have any of you had that experience? Um, uh, um, so I, I am a sophomore at Boston University. And if, for those who don't know, 
Um, our campus is basically stretched out across about a mile and a half to two miles um, in just in the city of Boston. Um, and my friends are very active. Um, we do have the train running straight through campus, but it costs $2 and college students do not want to pay $2 for the train. So um, they walk a lot. And um, similar to the last question um, saying that um, this person was having a lot of shortness of breath, I also experienced that too, especially when I had um, radiation and radiation induced pneumonitis. Um, and I have had success um, just asking for what I need, even over the weekend, we were doing the scavenger hunt. We won $50, by the way. Um, but we were running around and I was like, guys, like, can we just sit and like take take a few moments just so I can catch my breath and just so I can keep up with you guys? And the good people that the people you really want to keep around will be like, absolutely, no questions asked. Like, yes, let's do it as long as you need. And kind of like what I was saying earlier about the people, the people that will accept you and accommodate you, those are the good people that you should keep. And people that won't, girl, bye. Girl, bye. You can get out of my life. So yeah, that's kind of my experience. I'm just usually the person who's like, no, I can go for it. I can do it. Like, I don't even worry about it. Even when I'm like exhausted and like, don't have any more left in me, I'm kind of always the person to be like, oh, I don't need any help. Don't worry about it. And then I'm sitting in bed at night being like, I'm exhausted. Like, so exhausted. I didn't even do anything today. But I know at college in particular, like when everyone's walking really fast, I ended up getting a scooter. It's it's actually in my room right now. And I'll just, I'll zoom past everyone, you know, just feel better about myself. But, you know, there's some instances where I have to tell them, but usually everyone's very responsive. That's good to hear for sure. Um, I think those are all of our questions from the audience. Um, so Lauren, I know you prepared some slides for us. Um, are you ready to start those? Sure, yeah. All right. And I may get through some of these a little quickly because there's a lot and yeah. maybe not as much time. For sure, for sure. <laughs> um, um, so I share this that like I don't get any financial help from things that I mentioned in here. They're just things that I know that are helpful. Um, and I do want to say, I know you all said at the beginning of this, but um, that in this slide, we do talk about language. We use genitals, uh, actual names and things like that, that this can be triggering for some people. So if you are watching and this is something that doesn't work for you for whatever reason, um, feel free to take care of yourself, to step away, to, um, you know, stop the, uh, the presentation if this is where you need to stop. Um, but um, just make sure that you're taking care of yourself if you do feel a little bit triggered with any of this. Um, so when we talk about um, sexual health, uh, I think it's really important to talk about like what it is that we're actually talking about. Um, so many times when people say sex or sexual health, uh, most of us kind of go to that physical space. Um, this is the World Health Organization's definition of sexual health. This is the one that I use and I operate from. Um, and it's a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well-being in relation to sexuality. And I think the thing that's so important about that is yes, we are talking about physicality and um, about function and things like that, but we're also talking about the emotional self and how we relate to ourselves as a sexual person, how we relate to ourselves in, in, um, in any way within our body, with how we're functioning, with how we look, our mental health impacts our sexual selves. So if we have anxiety or depression or any other mental health concerns, that that impacts the way that we view ourselves and interact with ourselves or with others in a sexual way and our social well-being. So this is how we are in relationships, in groups of people, um, in an intimate relationship um, or interaction, um, that all of these pieces. So it's, it's really complex. It's a lot more than just the physicality. I just think that's so important to recognize. Um, and that we're also talking about a positive and respectful approach and a pleasurable and safe experience. Obviously, this definition has a lot more in it, but those are the things that I think are so important to pull out that we try to keep in mind when we're talking, or at least when I'm talking about sexual health. Um, so these are some of the side effects of a lot of the common treatments, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, et cetera. Um, and although many of them are not actually directly related to our sexual self or to our functioning, um, they do have an impact. 
Um, if we're thinking about pain, right? If you have pain in an area that is not related to sex, it's not related to any kind of sex organ or to our genitals, to anything that we would typically consider sexy, um, but we have pain. Uh, for most people, pain does not make you want to engage in any kind of intimate interaction. Um, and so thinking about how does that pain impact me? How does that impact my desire to engage with someone? How does that impact my ability to engage with someone? Can I not um, sit in certain ways or use certain positions, lean on certain limbs or, um, or use my hips in, in the same way that I used to? Um, and so really thinking about how that impacts me physically, but then also how that impacts me emotionally. Does it give me any drive to engage? So all of these things kind of do that in certain ways indirectly. Um, they're impacting the way that we engage with ourselves and the way that we engage with other people in a sexual manner. And um, normally I would be happy to go over all of this and all the details about how all of these impact, but I think for time's sake and for conversation's sake, that's maybe not as helpful. Um, I do want to note that some of these do have a direct impact. I put here, I like the terms um, vagina and penis owners because not all of us are cisgendered. And so we're using those kind of more um, accepting and, and more um, broad terms that includes everyone. Um, and so people who do have a vulva, vagina, uterus um, can have menopausal symptoms, right? We might get hot flashes or we might, our periods might stop. Um, we might um, have some um, changes to our vulvar or vaginal tissue. Um, and so sometimes that looks like dryness or pain. Sometimes it um, shrinks um, and becomes a little weaker, less flexible than it used to. Um, for people who have pelvic radiation, sometimes the vagina shortens. And so, um, and we'll talk a little bit about things that are helpful for that, but using, um, some different strategies to help keep our vagina more flexible and, and keep the length that we have as much as possible. Um, for those that have a penis and have testes, erectile dysfunction of any kind that can be having a difficulty getting an erection, that might be a difficulty maintaining an erection can occur from some of these treatments and then changes in ejaculation. And so, um, you know, at climax, some people won't have ejaculation at all. Some people prematurely or delayed have that than what they might have used to. And some people have what we call retrograde ejaculation. So what that means is the semen comes out, but before it actually comes out, it goes back in and it goes into the bladder. Um, and that can be really distressing um, for some people that are typically used to seeing their ejaculation come out. It's part of the experience that when it doesn't, it really feels like something's wrong and can be really difficult. Um, we talk about some of the emotional or mental impacts from treatment. Um, depression and anxiety are kind of the biggest ones that we see most often, especially among our younger people. Um, but a lot of fear about what does this mean? What does this mean for me? Will it come back? Um, what does this mean for my life trajectory and what life might look like? Sometimes it's guilt. Um, guilt for, I've heard a lot from young people I work with, um, that guilt of a feeling like maybe they're a burden or um, like they have caused pain to somebody else because of what's happened to them. Um, sometimes it's you get to know other people in your cancer circle and their circumstances are different than yours. Sometimes those, those things can bring guilt. Um, insomnia. Um, insomnia can be its own thing where you're having difficulty sleeping for physical reasons. But sometimes some of these other pieces contribute, right? Having anxious thoughts that a lot of times for people, they do come at night because everything slows down everything stops. It's quiet. And that gives your mind time to start racing. And so sometimes these things can kind of combine to cause um, some difficulties with sleep or other things. Sense of self. A lot of people I talk to say like, I don't feel like the person I used to be. Like the person I was pre-cancer is not the person I am now. And, and I'm trying to figure out who that is. Um, that sexual self schema. So that's who I am as a sexual person, how I see myself as a sexual person. Um, and that similar to the sense of self can also change, right? 
either I'm not interested in the things I used to be interested in. I can't do the things I used to do. Um, I'm, I don't have any desire at all. So like, how am I even a sexual person if I'm not interested at all? Um, I hear those things all the time. And so again, readjusting to um, what it means to be you, what it means to be a sexual person after cancer. Um, or um, keeping this in mind for people who are partners, uh, intimate partners, knowing that your partner might be going through this, or you might be feeling some of this because you're experiencing cancer in a slightly different way. Um, the, like I said, the sexual desire and arousal can change. So it's not only like I'm not interested, but sometimes the physical, like the physicality of arousal can just feel different. Um, and so adjusting to what that feels like. Performance anxiety is huge, um, especially if you haven't engaged in sex before or you haven't engaged in sex or any kind of intimacy after cancer. Kind of doing that for the first time or the first few times can be a little scary. Um, or if you're having any difficulty with arousal or with desire, or with erections, um, that, that expectation to perform can be overwhelming. And then just kind of all the other quality of life changes that do happen and how you're navigating school and work and life and friends and, and all of the things that come with this. Um, just kind of starting to manage what does life look like now and how do I navigate? Um, so these are the experiences we see the most uh, with our young people. Um, after diagnosis and after treatments. Um, so in physical sexual function, for people who have a vagina um, or a clitoris or a uterus, we're looking at lubrication. Um, so typically you think of the vagina and the vulva being pretty moist, right? It's pretty wet, it's pretty flexible, um, that that natural lubrication that we have in our bodies can change and really reduce. And so we're having a lot less lubrication or a lot of dryness. Um, that orgasms can feel different or be different or take longer um, for, for anybody. Um, and that for those who have a penis and testes, that that ejaculation might change. Um, in kind of the more emotional sexual realm, we're looking at loss or reduction in desire, a difference in what pleasure feels like, um, and, and then enjoyment, being able to be in the moment and actually enjoy what that feels like. Um, a lot of us will tend to go to our heads and not enjoy that as much. Um, obviously changes in fertility for a lot of people, and that can be a huge part of sexual engagement and, um, and so acknowledging that that's a big change um, that a lot of our adolescents and young adults work with. Um, and then um, changes in, in appearance, in body image. And as we were talking about dating and relationships, I think I watched um, one of your, I, I don't think, I watched one of your uh, osteo um, that you talked about body image already. So I'm not gonna talk about that a lot since you've, you've done a podcast on that, but just acknowledging that these are the things that our young people talk about the most. Um, not all encompassing, but most common. Um, and so some things that I would recommend, uh, mindfulness and meditation. If you're not already engaging in mindfulness and meditation, it can be oh, so valuable and so really wonderfully and helpful. Um, but um, mindfulness, it's a little different than meditation. Meditation you might be more familiar with where um, whether that's guided on your phone or on YouTube, you're listening to something, oftentimes your feet are planted on the ground, your eyes are closed, you're taking deep breaths and you're listening to a meditation, just trying to be present and knowing what's going on inside your body and in your mind. Mindfulness is kind of doing the same thing, but without the meditation. So you're being present in life right? So you're outside and you feel the sun in your skin and you're really paying attention to what that feels like in that moment and hearing the birds and feeling the wind and, and not paying attention to all the racing thoughts that you might be having, but just choosing to be here and what this feels like right now. Um, doing that in, um, in a kind of changing it into like a, an intimate space. Um, meditation can be really helpful to calm your system and give you some grounding before you engage with uh, any intimacy. So if that's something you're feeling nervous about or a little anxious about, engaging in some meditation before you start any intimacy can be really helpful. And then using mindfulness during any in intimacy. And so really, um, if you do notice that you're starting to have thoughts, whether they're anxious thoughts or to-do lists or things that you need to get to that start rushing through your head, acknowledge that they're there and say, I'm gonna pay attention to that later and I'm gonna be present now. 
One of the easiest ways to do that in an intimate environment is be present to your body. What are the sensations that I'm feeling here in this moment? Um, reframing or challenging those negative thoughts or those thoughts that aren't as helpful. Um, so that might be about how your body looks or the changes that have happened um, functionally. That might be about dating and relationships and starting to recognize that like maybe, maybe I'm having some difficult feelings that are absolutely valid. Maybe I'm grieving. And I like to use the word and instead of but, because we're not going to take that away. We're not taking away the difficult feelings, but we are also acknowledging that helpful feelings or helpful thoughts can also be present at the same time. So I can be upset or grieving or feeling sad about a change that's happened in my body and recognize the strength that I've had to get through what I've been through and recognize the um, beauty that I do hold. Um, what are the things that I do like about myself and offering compassion and kindness? Um, those mirror exercises I talked about earlier, I do tend to find really be really helpful. Physically, for those of us that have a vulva, a vagina, using lubrication. Um, and so buying a lubrication for any type of penetrative anything. Um, so that can be fingers, that can be a penis, that can be a toy. Um, it can be really anything. Um, it can also be things like dilators, um, which are really helpful in navigating some of those um, challenges with dryness and um, kind of the shrinking, or if we talked about kind of like the shrinking of size, using dilators is really helpful to stretch out those tissues. Using lubrication when you do that is really helpful. Um, reducing stimulation of non-genital pain. So like I said earlier, pain can be uh, really withdrawing from um, an intimate situation. So don't engage it. If it's not something that feels good for you, don't push it. Um, ask, kind of start those conversations we talked about in the dating part portion and ask like, this part of me hurts right now. Please don't push on it. Please don't put pressure. Please don't ask me to use it. Um, and, and that allows you to stay present in the part that is enjoyable. Um, using scarves or clothing covers, um, using wigs or other things that make you feel confident and comfortable in your own body um, that help cover scars or things that you're uncomfortable with, things that are changing, um, things that maybe just generally make you feel good about yourself um, and being creative um, with what that looks like. Some lingerie can be really exciting and really um, stimulating and gives you the permission to cover some things up that you're not as comfortable with. Um, so getting creative and thinking about what some of those things might be, if that's something that you're interested in using. Communicating with your partner. We talked about that earlier and just being open and honest and, and giving them the chance to do the same to you. Um, if we're making it a relationship or a sexual um, environment thing, it's not about you. Or we're not putting the pressure on you. We're not um, calling you out for needing certain things that we're giving permission for everybody in this interaction to have needs, to have desires and interests. Um, Self-exploration. If this falls within your moral, religious values, using things like masturbation, um, when pleasure changes, um, when sensation changes, sometimes you, exploring on your own what feels good now can be really helpful for future. What feels good now on your own? What feels good in the future on your own? What can I tell my partner to do? If I know what I like, I know how to tell them what I like. Um, pelvic floor physical therapy. So these are physical therapists, um, just as you would think for legs and arms and other parts of our bodies, they really help with muscles. There are physical therapists that specialize in what's called the pelvic floor. The pelvic floor is the muscular musculature that's essentially in your genitals between your hips, kind of like a bowl. Um, Sometimes that can change from treatments that can get tight or can make shifts. And so the pelvic floor therapists know how to evaluate and give you certain exercises that can help strengthen that or help loosen that. Sometimes um, people uh, don't realize that they're always like really tight, that they're really kind of holding a lot of tension. And so instead of learning how to strengthen, we're learning how to release and how to relax. Um, and so they'll be able to really help guide that. And then counseling or seeing a therapist, a therapist who specializes in 
sex therapy, if that's something that you're interested in exploring, um, working on anxiety um, can be really helpful in this space, even if it's not related to in, in intimacy. And then sensate focus. Sensate focus is a specific therapy tool um, that we use most often within partnerships um, where we're taking the pressure off of any expectations of pleasuring each other. And we're just getting comfortable with touching our partner's body and with being touched. Um, and when we start this, we take genitals and breasts off the table. Um, and it's a five, like a five part thing. So it takes a long time to get all the way through sensate focus. But the first one is just experimenting with touch, ideally without clothes. You cannot touch genitals. You cannot touch breasts but you're exploring what does it feel like to touch my partner and what does it feel like to be touched? And we're just getting used to that. And that can be really useful after cancer and after changes that you've had from cancer. Um, if you and your partner are re-exploring this world together um, now that things have changed. Um, just a few for um, our genital specific for our vagina and clitoris owners, um, cleanse and moisturize. You don't really need to use soap or douche or anything like that. Your vagina is generally a self-cleansing machine. Um, and so water, warm water, um, and moisturize. So moisturizer is different from a lube. Moisturizer is like what you would use on your skin. If you're going to use moisturize your arms and your legs, you would do the same thing for your vulva and your vagina. Um, and so it's just a couple, usually it's a couple times a week. I usually recommend if you haven't done it before, do it every day for two weeks and then change to every two or three days from there. And all we're doing is just adding a little bit of moisture, especially if we're having some dryness. Um, and I usually recommend doing that at night um, because if you're not used to moisture down there and then you add some and you walk around all day, you might be a little uncomfortable. Um, dilators and wands. So that's what's on the slide here. Dilators are the ones to the right that has eight of them. What we do is um, insert them into the vagina, hold there for 10 to 15 minutes and then remove. And all this is doing is it's stretching tissue. So if you are having any of that vaginal shortening I talked about, or we're starting to have some constriction or tightness of those muscles of that tissue, this really just kind of helps get them used to being stretched out again. Um, the wand um, is really helpful for, especially because it's got this nice handle um, for getting uh, kind of like the opening. So if you're looking at the vagina, kind of getting the opening right inside, the dilators can't quite push on that in the same way. So if you are having pain in that opening or sensitivity, that this can really help with that. Doing Kegel exercises helps with strength and control and then seeing providers like pelvic floor physical therapists, like sex therapists, um, like a gynecologist or a specialist in um, female sexual health and um, pain or cancer or whatever it is that you're dealing with can be really helpful. For those that have a penis and testes, again, those provider consults pelvic floor physical therapist, a urologist or an andrologist, which is a urologist with specialized training in sexual health. I'm really focusing on um, kind of the sexual needs of the male um, genitalia start and stop method. So what that is, is that's helpful for people who are having difficulty maintaining an erection, or you can use it if you're having some premature ejaculation, we do masturbation if this, and again, this has to fall within your morals and values to use this method. So if this doesn't work for you, that's okay. Um, but um, masturbating until you're close to climax and then stopping and allowing the erection to leave to completely um, go flaccid and then start again and get close to, um, uh, to climax and then stopping and allowing yourself to come back and keep doing that a few times. What that's doing is it's giving your body permission that like, if I lose an erection, I can get it back. Or it's giving you a chance to push that erection out or that ejaculation out a little bit further if you are having some premature ejaculation. Um, and then dysfunction. Um, and so dysfunction is just difficulty maintaining or getting an erection. Um, PDE5 inhibitors are pills, Viagra, Cialis, things like that that you've heard about. Um, those are the go-to. Um, after that, there are penile injections where it is exactly what it sounds like um, that you inject your penis with things that will help keep it erect. Um, urethral pellets, um, what you do is you inject 
a pellet into the very tip of your urethra. And again, the medication then um, comes down through the penis and helps it become erect. A vacuum erection device is this thing that's on the screen here. Um, what that does is it surrounds the penis, it vacuums the blood into the penis to make it become erect. And then you put, you see these rings down at the bottom, you a really stretchy silicone. You stretch them out around the penis, put them at the base, and that helps keep the blood in the penis to stay erect. Um, the penis constriction ring, the penile constriction ring can do that on its own. If you can get an erection, but you have a hard time keeping it, putting that ring on the bottom can really help you um, keep the blood in there. And then the implants. So this is really last resort because it's not a reversible surgery. So what this is, is you have implants um, that you open up the penis, you put the implants where the vasculature typically is to fill with blood. And then oftentimes there's like a pump um, that gets placed into one of the um, scrotus scrotum tissues and you pump it up and it comes, um, goes from flaccid to erect. Um, there are some that stay erect all the time. Um, and so then you can use another method to get it to stay up. Um, but a lot of the people will, will do the pump. Um, and it really is the last resort because it's surgical and you can't change it once you do it. Um, how do you know if you need help? Are you having concerns about sexual functioning? Have you experienced changes in body image or in self-esteem? Do you want to explore ways to increase desire and arousal? Maybe there are some other questions that you have as well. If these things come up for you, it might be helpful to talk to somebody. Maybe start with your oncologist. It could be really uncomfortable, but bringing it up, they might help you know where to go. If you don't have an oncologist or you're not comfortable with your oncologist, turn to maybe a social worker in that clinic. Um, or if you have a therapist, ask your therapist, even if they don't know the answer, can they help you find the person that does? Um, and then just some um, places you can turn for more information. Um, a couple of websites, the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists is really great for finding a therapist or a counselor. Counselors are the medical um, counterparts to therapists. Um, pelvic floor therapy, a couple of places that you can find um, pelvic floor therapists. So when we talk about pleasure, we're talking about safety. When I talk about safety, we're mostly talking about physical safety, but emotional safety is super important here. And so recognizing that when I'm talking about physical safety, it doesn't mean we're negating emotional safety. Being in a safe environment with a person you feel safe and comfortable with is really important when we talk about pleasure. Um, we're talking about desire and arousal. Um, and so uh, I have a few slides on desire and arousal. I'll show you. There's some models that you can see in understanding how our desire and arousal work within our bodies. Uh, we talked a little bit about self-exploration before. Again, if that falls within your morals and values, something you feel comfortable doing or you feel like you can do, um, that exploring what pleasure feels like to you now after cancer, maybe it's the same, maybe it's different, but if you know that and you know what works for you and what feels good, you'll have an easier time asking for it from a partner or partners. Um, partnered exploration. Um, and so uh, with that, we're talking about communication. We're talking about um, trying new positions that feel good um, or things that maybe didn't used to work are used to work, don't work now. Um, so we need to find alternatives and being willing to be creative and find those new spaces. Um, we'll talk a little bit about COVID-19. Um, and then, um, yeah, so desire and arousal. This is uh, an intimacy-based model of sexual response. Um, and so what we're looking at is, we'll start with emotional intimacy at the top, but this is a cycle, it really can start anywhere. But if you connect emotionally with somebody, you do have an emotional intimacy. It's possible from that emotional intimacy, you will have a desire to engage sexually. So that's what the spontaneous desire or spontaneous sex drive, sorry, is in the middle. The reason that this model is so important before I keep going is that a lot of us think about desire as something that we just kind of automatically spontaneously get. And sometimes after cancer treatment, that changes. Um, and that it doesn't just kind of come like it used to. Um, and so we can get what's called responsive desire that after certain stimuli or after certain engagement, then we become interested. Um, it's just as pleasurable. Um, and so if we're open to the possibility of being receptive to desire and not just making it come on its own spontaneously when it does, um, we might have more pleasurable experiences. So emotional intimacy, um, 
might bring on sex drive, um, something that you're interested in, your desire in engaging with someone. Um, if that doesn't, maybe sexual stimuli will. So this might be erotic content. This might be watching a movie that just happens to have some kind of intimate scene in it. This might be sexting or talking with your partner about what you want to do. Um, this might be actually engaging in some type of physical activity together, um, some kind of foreplay or something else. And so that sexual stimuli might bring the desire. Um, we also want to keep in mind that there are biological and psychological things that are at play. Um, if you're on treatment um, or you're post-treatment, there might be some physical changes that have happened that have changed the way that your body responds to desire. Um, and um, like depression, for example, or depression medications um, can impact desire. Um, and so knowing that sometimes some of these things are at play and just I think knowing that they're there and that they can impact this can give us a little less of a sense of um, shame. That like when we know that something is impacting us, that there's nothing, nothing wrong with us, that our body is responding to the things that we're dealing with um, can be really, just really helpful to have that knowledge. Um, so if the sexual stimuli doesn't work, sexual arousal might. Um, and so that's really where we're looking at the foreplay and engaging physically um, and allowing our bodies to respond. Um, and when our bodies respond, sometimes our minds respond with that interest and desire to keep going. If you have both together, um, then typically we have emotional and physical satisfaction uh, if we're engaging in a pleasurable activity together and then the cycle starts over. So uh, this is another model of desire and arousal, looking at how all the different parts of our lives um, intersect. Um, so it's called the biopsychosocial model of sexual response. So if we're looking at our biology, the physical things that are happening, our physical health, what's going on in our brains, what's going on with our hormones, we're looking at our psychology, are we having any performance anxiety? Do we have any things like depression, anxiety, stress, other things that are going on in our lives? We're looking at our interpersonal lives. So the quality of our relationships, do we feel safe and comfortable in a relationship? Are we in a relationship? Um, what are our past relationships? What do those look like? And are they impacting us now? Um, have we had intervals of abstinence? Have you not engaged in a sexual encounter since cancer? And maybe that's impacting you in some ways. Life stressors that are going on finances, right? As college students, I'm sure you all can understand the financial stress that comes with being a young person. Um, and then sociocultural uh, impacts. What do our upbringings tell us about um, intimacy and arousal? What do our cultural norms tell us? What does our religion tell us? Um, what expectations do we have from our culture, from our parents, from our friends? And so when all of these things intersect, um, that can also impact how our sexual response occurs, um, how we feel about having a sexual response or not having a sexual response. Um, and then the dual control model. I love this one so much. Um, it makes so much sense to me. Um, and it's not something that we always think about that our um, interest, our desire to engage with someone has a gas pedal and a brake pedal, just like your car. So there are going to be things that get you really excited, that make you want to go. Respect of your partner, maybe attractiveness of your partner. You have trust, you have affection, you have confidence, you feel comfortable with them. Um, you're feeling treasured by them. You're feeling good and healthy in this moment, right here, right now. Um, those things, there may be many others of your own that aren't on this list, will push your gas pedal, make you really interested and excited um, to engage. And then there are some things that are really going to push your, your brakes stress and fatigue for most people, stress puts a, pushes the brake pedal. So if you think about all the things that are going on in your stress life and your, uh, in your life, sorry, that are stressful and you notice you're not in, interested in being sexual with anybody, maybe the stress is impacting that interest. Pain can impact, can be a big gasp um, and trauma, uh, which I, if you haven't heard this before, a lot of people consider cancer to be a pretty traumatic event. Um, I would agree. That cancer is pretty traumatic. Um, feeling obligated to engage is going to push a gas pedal. It's really not going to make you interested in, in being a part of that. 
having body image that you are struggling with um, or body changes that you're struggling with and you're still adjusting to not feeling that confidence, um, not trusting the person that you're with or fear and worry about pregnancy or about STIs, um, all of that can push the gas pedal. And everybody's a little bit different, right? Some of these things might not push your, your brake pedal. Some of these things might transfer. Some people, when they're stressed, sex is actually all they ever want. And so that stress goes from a stop to a go. Um, and so everybody's a little bit different, but knowing what what's on your gas pedal, what's on your brake pedal, and just understanding that, that those are the things that are operating within your system can be really helpful. Um, being open and curious, just allowing yourself to be present, be open to things that feel comfortable and safe to be curious about what things have changed. And maybe there are new things that bring you pleasure you don't know about yet. Um, and then doing some self-exploration. Um, and so this is some of that intimate personal time and some things that might help um, explore that intimate personal time, things that you like, things that you don't like, again, just kind of getting to know what works for you. Um, so the left-hand side is really about that physical, intimate, personal time. The right side is a little bit more about getting to know yourself emotionally um, and understanding both in a sexual and in a not sexual way what's changed. Um, that might be a life change that might be because of cancer that might be because of something else, a different life transition. Um, but giving yourself some space to be with yourself to maybe journal and write down what works for you or what doesn't work for you or how you're feeling. Um, talking with other people who get your life circumstances, talking with a therapist, doing meditation. Um, that last bullet really should be on the left hand side. Of it. Um, really just um, being curious about you. Um, and then partnered exploration, um, rest, give yourself enough rest. If you're engaging in any kind of partnered exploration, um, being exhausted, is not going to help you be in a comfortable and pleasurable space. Um, and so if you can rest ahead of time, that can be really helpful. Some people I work with really prefer to take a bath or a shower ahead of time. That warm water is just really soothing, comforts their system, um, and their anxiety. Um, talk about safety and pleasure ahead of time. Like I said, kind of at the beginning of our talk, um, set the mood, um, bring candles or music or lighting or, um, you know, lingerie or certain sheets, something that things that feel good to you that set, set that environment. Pain management. If you are having pain, take your pain meds. If, if, if it's safe to do so and, and time-wise, 30 minutes, 30 to 60 minutes before you engage in any kind of sexual encounter. That allows time for those meds to set in and for that pain to be managed before you engage in any kind of pleasurable activity. Uh, take your time. Enjoy the moment. Allow there to be time. You're not in a rush, hopefully. I mean, maybe you have to get to class or something and maybe you are in a rush, but if you can, take your time and, and enjoy that space. Allow yourself time to feel that pleasure and get to that climax if that's something that you're getting to. For some couples, scheduling sex can be really helpful. Um, people who are dating are kind of already doing this anyways if you're engaging in sex. Is when you see each other, you're kind of scheduling that time together. For people who live together or who have been together for a long time, um, that um, scheduling sex can be really helpful because it gives you time to anticipate. Um, and it gives you time to build up and get excited about uh, being together. Um, there are certain um, positions that can be really useful um, using a sexual menu or a script. Um, basically, this is identifying the things that do work for me and the things that don't, the things I'm interested in and the things I'm not. Um, and if you do that as a couple, um, now you know what's off of their list that you don't want to do and vice versa, but also what's on their list and you do want to do and vice versa. Um, and again, sensate focus that we talked about. Um, um, and then COVID-19 um, is just to be safe. I know COVID-19 is very different than it was three years ago, two, two and a half years ago. Um, but continuing to be safe, especially if you are still immunocompromised, the, the safest option is masturbation because you're, if it's, again, falls within your values and morals, um, because you're not engaging with another person, you're not um, risking any type of exposure. Cybersex, so that can be sexting, that can be video sex, that can be phone sex. There are certain things called um, teledildonics, which are toys that um, you can control over the internet 
uh, for your partner, things like that, that allow you to engage with somebody without being in the same room. Um, quarantine ahead of time, make sure you know you're not sick, that you're, if you're not feeling well, don't go and vice versa. Um, the number of partners you have, reducing that to a smaller number reduces your risk of exposure. Avoid kissing. Um, this is again a little bit different than it was a while ago, but we know that COVID is exposed through breath and through um, droplets and, and through our mouths. So kissing heightens your exposure risk pretty, pretty high there. Um, use protective barriers, things like condoms. Um, creative positions, um, things where you're not gonna be face-to-face -face, uh, around a corner, through pillows, set up barriers, other things like that, um, and washing. Washing yourselves before and after, especially after, um, can be really important for prevention. So that's everything. Um, I know that was a ton. So um, thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I know definitely learned some things I never knew um, before. So yeah, um, so I think we're just about out of time today. So to our audience, thank you so much for tuning in to Osteo, the Osteosarcoma podcast. Be sure to follow MIB agents on social media at the links in the description for all the intel. And thank you so much to Lauren again for speaking with us today. Um, we're your hosts, Camille, Nikki, and Shannon. And until next time, that's the tea.